0: Fast Forward Productions, the women are speaking. Hi, everyone. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. It is absolutely vital for survivors in our communities to have the right to bodily autonomy respected and honored and upheld by the law and the Constitution. As we continue to move forward to work to dismantle rape culture and violence in our communities, it is absolutely vital that we support and reinforce and strengthen any protections that we have for bodily autonomy in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors. So please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. I'm really excited to share with you this episode. It's another episode from the interview back last fall with Olivia Pepper. I'm sharing this episode now. I know it's a little bit delayed, but I actually thought it was a great launching point for taking the podcast in this next steps and next direction with how we talk about community and showing up for survivors So in this episode, Olivia shares their story and how they've been involved in community work and what it means to be involved in community work for survivors and to dedicate her life to this and how she dedicated her life to this. And it's really awesome to hear more of their beautiful wisdom that they share on this topic. I think that you're going to benefit from it greatly. I'm going to expand even more off of what Olivia discusses here because I have been so inspired by his words and how they spoke to me about what it means to truly build a community that centers survivors and centers our urges for growth and change in the community and what that truly means and what that looks like and how we have to evolve as a community in order to do so. And I'm looking forward to being able to discuss all of that in these future episodes and the next steps that we're going to launch. But for now, please welcome back Olivia Pepper. Thank you so much for coming back, Olivia. We're so happy to have you again here tonight. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, thank you so much. I think there's so much that you're sharing that's so wonderful for everybody to hear, survivors, allies, and anyone else, especially this vision of the future and what we can do that can really take care of people in such a nice way. And today you came back so that you can share with us more about your recovery story?
1: Yeah. So my recovery story, I think, like many people is a little bit complicated. I experienced sexual molestation as a child and came into cognizance around that when I was a young teen, like started to be aware of what these memories meant and how that might have impacted my mental health. And I noticed it mostly because I was experiencing pretty profound terror about the idea of becoming sexual with other people. So like puberty, adolescence, I was like, "Oh, this is really scary. Why is it so scary? Oh, That's why it's so scary. And so I became pretty active as a survivor, even in my teens. Unfortunately, I then had an experience of date rape with one of my first partners. And so that was really traumatic because of having kind of done this work and this reconciliation within myself already. After that, I experienced a succession of some boundary crossings and assaults in intimate partner relationships. And it was when I was in my mid-twenties, I realized that I couldn't do that anymore, whatever that was. There was this sort of point where I was like, okay, this needs to stop. I've done so much work and examined things and done a lot of therapy and done a lot of reading, but somehow I need to figure out what breaking this cycle looks like for me. I was already a practicing Mystic and magician at that time. And so a lot of it did actually involve ritual magic that I kind of constructed around myself to protect myself and to give myself strength and to move out of this trauma response of like freezing or shutting down, which was contributing to me having additional experiences with boundary violations. And so I started to move out of that. And I also started to really look very critically at rape culture as kind of an institution, a societal institution, and a way that people of all genders and all backgrounds are kind of funneled into roles within this kind of system or machination. And so I started to confront it more as a ethos rather than an interpersonal challenge that I was having. And I think getting really involved in the idea of wanting to be part of eradicating the whole system of rape culture was what really kind of gave me the strength to transform things in my personal life that were in some ways creating the terrain for me to continue to have difficult experiences. So it really helped to move me out of the trauma responses that I was having to analyze this as a societal system that I was falling prey to.
0: Wow. So it sounds like your experience really launched you into a lot of activism and action.
1: It did. Yeah, I... <laughs> there was a point when a group of artists, because I've always participated in artistic communities, I've uh, been a filmmaker, I've been a writer, poet, and I ran a gallery for a few years. And there was a point where, because I talked about this subject so much and so openly, and made art about it and discussed it openly, and that was like a big part of my recovery journey someone didn't remember my name and they referred to me as the rape lady, which I decided to actually like take with a certain amount of laughter. Like I was like, okay, like I, this could either hurt me or I could find this funny. There's a few of my close friends who still occasionally affectionately referred to me as the rape lady, because for a while I was just the person who had resources for people. Like I knew what to do if something had happened in the extended community, I would be like, okay, here's who you, and this is the therapist who specializes and this is what we do next. So I did move into this kind
0: of an activist role. Wow. It's really powerful. It sounds like there was a lot of awareness very quickly from a very young age. And that's definitely very unique. I think a lot of people get indoctrinated. Well, let me rephrase. Most people, if not every human, gets indoctrinated into rape culture, regardless of whether or not they experience trauma, but especially when they experience trauma as a child. Was there anything that like kind of stood out to you that helped bring some of this clarity that you had? Or is that something that you just felt Like you had just kind of within yourself about this?
1: So, my first foray into activism, at least around this subject, my parents were both fairly politically active people. And my parents did not know about the molestation that I had experienced. And I did not tell them for a very long time. So, they were kind of unaware of this part of my life. I had done some like anti war protesting and some environmental protesting with them. So, when I was about 15 in the early days of the internet, I started a website that was for survivors and (laughs) it was for survivors to connect with each other and talk about their experiences. And I ran this website on angelfire.com in the nineties. That was a website for survivors. So it was like live journal era, web rings era. And there were a lot of web rings that were dedicated to survivor websites. So there were a lot of like personal story websites. And I started having email correspondences with people. And these were the days of AOL instant messenger. So I would have a lot of AIM chats with other survivors. So the internet really was something that facilitated a lot of my education and a lot of my solidarity with other survivors. And then I think I went to my first Take Back the Night March when I was like 16. So I became aware of some activism on a community level and started participating there. Everything that I was able to learn was a great gift from other activists who were working very, very hard. I started volunteering for a sexual assault community services program in my hometown, teaching a few different subjects. We would go to the local high school. And there were some self-defense classes, and there were also just some like open sharing spaces to get people to talk about their experiences. And so I did a lot of that facilitation. I did some writing about it when I was a journalist as well, some editorial writing, and then also some reporting.
0: So you've kind of been a bit of, for lack of a better word, kind of like a little survivor badass from the get-go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like
1: it was so challenging to have that niche or to have kind of like made that a big part of my identity. And then also to experience additional assaults was very like demoralizing and frustrating. But I think that it only granted me sort of like a greater understanding of this as like a societal ill and a system that needs to be dismantled. So yeah, I think I was kind of a badass. I gave a speech that take back the night when I was like 18 years old.
0: And I think my experience with all of these things, because my assault occurred more recently, it was like about eight years ago. I think I benefited a lot from these communities that survivors had built because growing up, you know, and seeing the take back the night marches and to see all of the information being shared and to connect with people who are raising awareness in this different way. I think, enabled me when it was time for me to go through my recovery of having some hope that there are people out there that not only like are like me and they, they went through this and they know and they've experienced this but are already working to create an environment that is not only safe and recovery-based for survivors but also is oriented towards ending the sexual violence altogether and creating communities in which sexual violence doesn't occur and is managed in a way that is reparative and regenerative rather than toxic and painful.
1: Yeah, I'm very inspired by the legacy of activism around this subject. I I also kind of constantly remind myself to place it accurately within a timeline because this form of activism is really so incredibly new. You know, people were not speaking about this. We're not discussing it. We're not having dialogue about it until very recently. There are people who are alive who right now who had experiences with rape and sexual assault who did not have anywhere to go. No one to talk to, nothing about it, nothing written about it, no discussions, no campus support group, nothing. And I think I like to remind myself that it can feel interminable. You know, there's so much suffering and so much pain and so much trauma. And I also remember that Tori Amos, who I always have to give a little like survivor kiss to, Tori Amos started the first Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. It was the first sexual assault support hotline ever in existence. And it was only started in the late 80s or early 90s. And it was because she was expressing her experiences with her rape. And she had so many people coming to her after concerts saying something similar happened to me. Can I talk to you about it? And she felt inundated. And she realized that there was a desperate need for a place that people could call. So she was the founder of that. I mean, I can't remember what year it was founded, but it's younger than I am.
0: That's amazing. I actually didn't know that about the history of Rain.
1: Yeah, she started it. Her first album has a song about her rape called Me and a Gun. And she would perform that song and she would often finish her sets with that song. And it's just her voice usually. And when she finished the sets, people would come up and talk to her kind of in droves about their own traumas. And she's the original founder of that organization.
0: That's wonderful. I love Tori Amos. Yeah, me too. Well, so it sounds like for you, a major part of your recovery has been being very active and instrumental in activism. Does this feel like this was something that really served your recovery or was it a product of your recovery, chicken or the egg kind of question? Mm. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think
0: that it is both for me.
1: I think there have even been times where my activism has been potentially kind of like a workaholism adjacent distraction from my personal healing. Like it's been this like, oh, okay, I need to like be doing this thing, organizing this thing, printing this zine, calling these people doing this work. And so I have at times felt like my activism has been kind of a blessing and a curse in some ways with regard to my personal journey of recovery. But I think I just felt so strongly that I didn't want anybody else to go through what I had gone through, and that I wanted to enact systemic change to make that a reality. And so Activism was kind of the natural path for me. So I think it was in response to my initial experiences, like activism, it came out of the recognitions that I was having in myself, it came to me as this, like, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that it doesn't.
0: It's so wonderful to hear, like, you were so clear on who you were and your values through all of this, and that that was really a driving force moving forward. And especially, like, that I don't want this to happen to anyone and I want systemic change because I can see that this is a systemic problem. And I think, it, you know, it's something that's very normal and natural for survivors of any trauma, and especially as sexual assault survivors to have this kind of sense of purpose come from I need to change this for the future. I need to also be bringing out other people from this path, you know, that are coming after me and I need to make this a better place for them. But I also need to be instrumental in creating change. It's something that feels like it's a little bit of a miracle of recovery and trauma recovery. And I think sometimes it's mistakenly discussed as resilience and resilience is really just like the ability to survive tough things and to get out on the other side of them. As we discussed about even using the Word survival being so limiting and problematic in its way, and that there's something else that's so powerful that a player and a product of our recovery process is not just a reclaiming, but it's actually an asserting and a changing and becoming and choosing to become an instrument in many ways, and how that does you know end up being a part of our recovery. It ends up healing different parts of ourselves. Things that maybe we we couldn't heal any other way except by doing this, except by these kinds of acts of contributing and acts of change, you know, and also is caused because of our recovery in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I feel like I definitely have built a lot of my identity around this activism at times in my life. Now, I think it has been a less prominent part of my sort of public persona or presentation, although I still am open about it and share my artwork and poetry as it relates to these subjects. And obviously I'm here talking with you, but I'm not doing as much kind of like hands-on activism work around this, at least right now. But I really think that the motivation for me around it was this kind of fury about knowing that the world didn't have to be like this. Like I knew the world could be better. I knew the world could be filled with pleasure and clarity and mutuality and joy and power alongside rather than power over. And that's just what kind of came in fairly immediately when I started to recognize these things that had happened in my life. I started to understand that yeah, I was really I was really angry and I really wanted to make a change and I was really inspired by all of the activists variety of avenues who had come before me wanting to make change as well.
0: Yeah, it's reminding me of this conversation I was having because in, in my free time I like to do some creative writing and stuff like that which is also such a for me at least a very functional vehicle for continuing some recovery. And I was grappling with this issue of justice, justice versus like vengeance. And especially because there's so much criticism around media showing rape revenge stories. And there's part of me that's just like, why is that a problem? Like, why why is it a problem to have rape revenge stories? I don't see any issue with that. And then the other side of me is like, there does have to be something more to this story than just revenge because that's not enough. It's not sufficient in the sense of not just around that story, but really when we think about justice and restoration and reclamation. And somebody, you know, the person I was working with was talking about having a moment of being able to transcend justice in a way away from the way that it is described and understood in our culture as it is now which is punishment truly it's just we uh, we understand justice to be punishment for a crime you know as opposed to like restoration and reclamation of what was lost and reconnection and things like that and it sounds like that's kind of what you're describing in many ways is this almost just like it sounds like very innate wisdom about how to transcend justice and that anger and inner knowing that was within you about really working towards towards finding ways to transcend justice as we know it now.
1: Yeah, some of the research that I have done I you know alluded to like my interest in kind of understanding the origins of rape culture as well as just sort of like human behavior throughout the ages and how it has coalesced and how we've gotten here now and there was a researcher a few years ago that I had a correspondence with who's one of the few like I think, strictly very academic rape researchers in the world. She's a researcher in Sweden, which Sweden actually does have quite a lot of policies around attempting to amend their cultural relationship with rape culture and attempting to sort of correct it. There's a lot to get into there, but she has this paper and I'll try to find a link to it if I can in English for you. But she talked about the idea of culturally working together to make rape a taboo. Not a taboo subject, not something that can't be talked about, but a taboo in the way that like there's like revulsion around the idea that anyone could do something like that and that it's completely unimaginable and very startling. And for her resources, she talked about how cannibalism used to be widely common around the world and that somehow there was the introduction of a taboo around cannibalism that sort of spread organically through people about a thousand years ago is really when it was like this is not okay and not done and so she's really kind of researching trying to find ways to culturally transform attitudes around it to where it's much more startling and garish and kind of like people are averse to the idea that something like that could take place and that they feel a really strong sense of like rejecting it rather than, you know, what I perceive, which is this kind of, you know, the whole murky, he said, she said, narrative structure of kind of like everything's interpretable, like it's sort of this loose interpretation or very private experience. In my mind, there's not quite enough moral outrage around the subject of rape.
0: Yes. (laughs) As you were saying that, I was just like, I also feel like she's making a very direct call out that it's not yet a taboo, that it is not something that people feel repulsed by. They, like you said, they feel repulsed by discussing it. and particularly they feel repulsed by survivors. And that was the thing. I think that was a, another piece of a facade that shattered for me. And it was one that I suspected would shatter as I was learning a lot of things, but especially about Supreme Court appointments and with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and hearing people be so bold as to say, as a public figure, out loud, in print, in permanent records, that it's okay that he sexually assaulted multiple people. And I think it was something that I suspected that people believe this. They seem to be downplaying this a lot. And there still is like maybe this naive part. I mean, this this part might still be a little bit alive of this hope that like, if we just get them to understand how harmful this is to people... Then maybe they'll be like, oh, okay, maybe it is bad. And it's that's not what's happening. But especially then seeing that, it's like, oh, like you're not even afraid to admit it. You're not even afraid to have our future generations look back and see that you believe that rape is okay. And that for me was also like a huge fire that lit underneath me around, you know, starting some of this work where I was like, I don't think that I will be able to leave this life satisfied if I didn't speak louder about this. Because it is not okay with me to live in a world where people are okay with rape. Yeah. I I can't. And that's so interesting about what she's pointing out and that she's already implementing policies around that to try to create that in the culture
1: there's a lot to say about the foolhardiness of certain aspects of the so-called Scandinavian model of society and culture. But I do think a lot of the most inspiring work that I've seen on a structural level is coming out of some of the Scandinavian countries in terms of the way of approaching these issues with a combination of sort of restorative justice and victim support, and the cultural model of how these things are kind of discussed is starting to change. I think that's really important. In my correspondence with this researcher, you know, she said, we have to get to the point where it is as taboo as cannibalism to where no one would ever say, well, in certain situations, I could see eating someone, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of the attitude that a lot of people have now, right? right? You know, like, that's so pervasive in the culture is this, well, you know, we know that it's wrong, but there's a lot of places where there's a gray area or depending on who the victim is, you could see how that could happen. And it's just like, no, we need to get to the point where it's like, this is not ever okay. There's nothing okay about it. There is no room for like flexibility in our moral and ethical descriptions of this reality. So we need to be a lot more firm in terms of actively decrying this phenomenon in culture.
0: I feel like when we talk, we get all of these beautiful images of the future that I'm like, I've only been dreaming of this. I didn't know that it's so possible. People are even figuring out how to make it happen. It's awesome. Yeah. My great wish
1: is that there will be a time for those who come after us when People are like genuinely puzzled and overwhelmed by the idea that this ever happened to people. Like, what do you mean? Like, that's what, what? Like, this is that ever happened? You know, I think that there will be a cycle of a lot of grief (laughs) that people will move through. But I do hope that with efforts like the ones that you make, the ones that I make, the ones that all of these activists who have nurtured us, and all of the people who have brought their heavy gifts into this world and expressed them and utilize them. I really hope that someday humanity will not know the definition of these words because they will be so distantly in the past.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of this and for sharing your story with us and for being such a wonderfully active contributor to dismantling rape culture and bringing in communities of support and restoration. And yeah, any final words for any of the survivors listening to this tonight?
1: I mean, the first thing that I want to say is like, we got you, which I know that can feel kind of, um, it can feel like nobody has you at certain points in this process, but I just want to say like, we do, there is a web and a network of people growing and expanding who Understand their own processes around these horrible things and who are ready and available to expand our experience of what it is to be a survivor, what it is to have experienced trauma. And we're calling you into the center. You're being called into the center. All the survivors out there listening right now, I just want to say, I'm calling you into the center. And even if I can't promise to call you into the center of every level of society, I'm calling you into the center of my personal path. And we're really tough.
0: So we got you. Yes. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for just making this space. And making media that discusses this because addressing it directly is the way that we're going to get to that future that we're imagining
0: absolutely that is definitely my goal do anything to get there kind of thing thank you so much thank you I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, Know that Rain is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at Rain at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.